0: There was a poll where they asked the youth of various countries what you want to be when you grow up, and the answer to, to, of, of those 10 years olds was, was maybe YouTuber in the U.S., for example, and on the other hand, it was astronaut in, in China. So who are you guys?
1: Sure. So um, I'm Blaine Herscio. I'm the co-host of the Dongfang Hour, and uh, my day job, I'm uh, the founder of Orbital Gateway Consulting, a research and consulting firm in Hong Kong, and I'm also an affiliate consultant for a company called EuroConsult based out of Paris.
0: And I, I'm Jean Deville. I'm the other co-host uh, of the Dongfang Hour. Um, so my day job uh, is actually working in the aerospace industry with something that's not exactly related to, to space, but uh, in my other part-time passion uh, is, is China and is space. And so when you put that together, that gives the Dongfang Hour. I also share some s- thoughts on, on a personal blog called the uh, China Aerospace Blog. One of the things we haven't talked too much in past episodes of China Talk on space is launch. What is launch, and what are the dynamics particular to the Chinese space launch industry? So um, the idea of launch basically is generally to put uh, an object, a spacecraft, a satellite, in orbit around the Earth. And to do that, you have to reach a certain uh, velocity. So that's just orbital mechanics, uh, several kilometers per second. And in order to do that, you have to... um, well, you need a launch vehicle to to slowly gain all this speed, all this velocity, all this momentum, and so that's what launch is, is all about. And um, talking a little bit about the dynamics of launch in, in Chinese space, uh, China historically has been rather in. So I'm I'm speaking for anything before 2015, 2016 was rather um, you know third, fourth, fifth in, in in the number of launches. But over the past five-ish years, probably it, the numbers of launches that uh, China has, has done is just astounding several times over the past five years, the country to put uh, the most satellites into space. And so that is a reflection of a very active space program that um, relates to many things, communications, Earth observation, SATNAV and just its space exploration program. So um, a lot of stuff happening currently in, in Chinese space and Chinese launch.
1: I was going to say, just I guess to to add to that, I think at the moment in Chinese launch, one of the things that we're seeing is just a really incredible number of companies coming out of the the woodwork. So we've seen like you know more than twenty launch companies, and, and it's such that you know you now have companies that are. You know, many companies that are building rockets, but then you have a number of companies that are specializing in some kind of sub, like sort of subsystems level type of of area, like building, uh, you know, specific methalox powered rocket engines, for example. So, yeah, definitely just a lot of diversity amongst these companies. uh, Well, to some extent, but at the same time, all building uh, a, a... product that uh, is in a market that I guess will get commoditized at a certain point. Once you reach a certain number of launches, it's basically just sending things to orbit. And there are some kind of um, parameters. But but in general, it, it it's quite, I don't know how many of the companies will survive long term. There's a lot of different companies now.
2: So what are the metrics on which these firms are competing?
0: Well, I, I think you can look at these different uh, companies from the perspective of technology. First of all, what type of Technology they are using to put their, their, you know, the spacecraft, their payload into space. And there's the, um, there's maybe the classic technology that's been used for many years already, which is to have a multi stage rocket. Um, the, the, the rocket is in several modules um, that dislocate as the, the rocket gets higher and higher. You put the satellite into orbit, and then the different stages of the rocket then disintegrate by re entering the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and then there's been since, you know, since, um, you know, the Falcon 9 of, of SpaceX, there's been this strategy of saying, hey, we want to um, reuse uh, the first stage. We want to u- reuse these various parts of the rockets. Um, and then uh, SpaceX has been doing that very successfully over the past few years. Um, and so uh, you can sort of segregate um, rockets between those that are expendable and those um, that are reusable. So that's technology perspective. You can get a, a, a lot more detail into the technology, what type of fuel they're using, what's the efficiency, what's the you know thrust to weight ratio. There's a lot of things to look at. But basically, I think that's one of the big differentiating factors between the rockets. Uh, what is their launch strategy? And the second point is how big your rocket is, how much payload is it able to put into orbit? And again, there are different strat- strategies here. There are rocket companies that People who think you must make the biggest rockets possible, and that way you can have your, your rocket sort of works like a bus. You have a lot of passengers, that's the satellites, and then it makes, you know, individually, it makes launch much cheaper. And there are others that think that, no, you should make rather uh, small launch vehicles that only carry a couple of satellites, but that way you can have a much more tailored uh, service to each satellite, can put it in exactly the right orbit, also, one other
1: point to add that's a little bit more specific to China, I think, are sort of elements of geography and and I guess sort of politics to a certain extent. Insofar as you have mm-hmm. um, certain launch companies that have set up in areas that are either uh, geographically quite close to what might be either the future commercial launch site in, in Ningbo, for example, or just close to the coast and, and sort of near to, uh, to Hainan. So for the, the two examples, I would say would be Caspace, which is the sort of the launch company of the Chinese Academy of Sciences that they've set up in in Nansha and Guangzhou mm-hmm. Um, and basically Nansha, I mean, it's an island in the Pearl River Delta where you could literally, you know, on, on a boat, be out in the South China Sea within a couple of hours um, and be at Wenchang within like one day. And so you have a situation where they're building uh, rocket manufacturing facilities in in Guangzhou, basically with the sort of whole supply chain of, you know, Guangdong, which is quite a, a lot of advanced manufacturing, if not directly aerospace related. And then you have, you know, a, a relatively more livable place Guangzhou as compared to like, you know, Hainan, which I mean, is livable in some ways, but not if you're a, a young professional, I guess, in, in China, it's probably better to live in, in Guangzhou in, in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, nothing against uh, Hainan, but I guess, you know, more more opportunities in Guangzhou, we could say probably all else equal, but But yeah, no, it's it's fair. The best dim sum I've ever had was in Haikou, I think. Um, But that's another, yeah. yeah. There you go. (laughs) Um, Literally the best dim sum I've ever had. And I lived in Guangdong for some time. But digressing, the the other kind of geographic uh, element that's quite interesting is the the sort of cluster of companies building up around Huzhou. So you have uh, land space with their facility there. And then a a newer company called Rocket Group. And that's, again, close to the Ningbo uh, commercial launch site that was announced in the sort of medium-term development plan of Ningbo last year. So, yeah, again, I think geography and and kind of relationship with provincial governments and ability to get land, which was the the case in Huzhou, and I think also some investment, um, that's another sort of more, not as direct of a differentiator, but it still makes a difference, I think.
2: So one of the crazy things that SpaceX can do is land rockets. How important is that to the overall cost-effectiveness of launch, and how close are Chinese firms to gaining that capacity?
0: There's been a debate for many years on how viable is is you know vertical takeoff vertical landing rockets and historically Europeans notably have been more reluctant about about this type of technology. Um, the Chinese I think in the early years maybe in the early 2000s, although they've always used looked at they've always have had some studies on reusable rockets they have also had the, their reluctance and but now the I think the overall global consensus is that this is just a great way to bring the costs of launch down. But there, there's a discussion on how, you know, the a minimum amount of uh, launches that you must have e- every year to make, make it actually interesting to try to get your um, parts of your rockets back uh, to reuse them. Um, so anyway, there, there's a debate. But overall, the consensus is that this is uh, the way to go in order to bring your price down. And I mean, the proof is just the, fa- you know, the prices that uh, SpaceX is able to propose to a lot of its customers compared to the more traditional Ariane space or you know, other traditional, more traditional launch uh, launch services providers. Um, and China has, is on track of being able to achieve reusable rockets. Um, they've had a number of private, almost all private companies, uh, launch companies actually are working on rockets that look very similar to the Falcon 9, although with a much smaller payload. Uh, the idea is really to take off and to land vertically, to reuse um, the same first stage, to have uh, an engine layout that looks very much like the Falcon 9 and and you know some of the uh, some of these rocket companies in China are also using very similar fuels to what um, SpaceX is using so the traditional uh, liquid uh, kerosene liquid oxygen or liquid methane and liquid oxygen China has has not had a fully operational reusable rocket just yet but um, we've seen many very promising prototypes for example um, there's a company called Linkspace space uh, that uh, Almost two years ago now or, or three years ago, they did uh, a vertical takeoff, vertical landing experiment with a prototype and where we could see uh, a rocket taking off basically a first stage, a single stage rocket, uh, rise up 150 meters and then land back on the ground, which shows some good understanding and a very good mastery of the um, these uh, mechanics, these uh, you know, the physics of uh, vertical landing. Um, we've had other companies also typically um, Deep Blue Aerospace, but also uh, iSpace, also called a... Uh, interstellar glory. These companies also are planning these first hops um, this year. And if all goes well, possibly we could see the first launch of the orbital launch of the very first uh, vertical takeoff, vertical landing, reusable rocket by the end of this year or early next year. So that they are moving very fast. And they're probably, you know, in terms of this type of technology, they're probably the second country behind, behind the US, I would think. One of the reasons
2: companies are interested in getting really cheap launch is the ability to put tens of thousands of satellites in the sky to give you a nice space internet. This is something which currently exists in a handful of Western competitors, SpaceX Starlink being the most prominent. But I'm curious for your perspective on Chinese low Earth orbit constellations. Sure.
1: So I guess low-Earth orbit uh, satellite constellations um, really have only come about in China over the last several years. So there was sort of a first wave of various plans. And then more recently, we've seen a significant upgrade of those plans. So the the first wave, which was around 2018, 2019, uh, there were several, and I guess they still exist, uh, programs that were being done by companies like CASC and Kasic, basically the usual suspects, large SOEs that are doing a lot of China's main space projects. And these programs, in particular are called Hongyan and Hongyun. Um, and these are a few hundred satellites, uh, broadband constellations, similar, I think, in, in scale to the original, say, one-web uh, low-Earth orbit constellation plan, which would have been around 2015. And as we've seen in the West, where you had sort of this original, you know, 600-ish satellite constellation from OneWeb uh, get expanded to some few thousand, and then Starlink came in with, you know, 10,000 plus, and then Kuiper from Amazon came in with, you know, 10,000 plus also. Um, We've seen in China these original plans, which again are only like three years old and had originally been pledging, uh, you know, these companies were talking about like 20 billion RMB for these projects per project. These projects were really rapidly looking like they were going to be much, much smaller scale than these really huge constellations, and this became even more apparent when like you know in late 2019 early 2020 Starlink and, and well SpaceX started launching like 60 Starlink satellites every 2 weeks pretty much and i remember i was at a conference at the end of september 20 or september 2019 and the president of SpaceX Gwyn Shotwell she um, she said oh yeah next year we're going to do every every 2 weeks 60 satellites per per 2 weeks and the people in the room myself uh, leading most among them were like there is no that's crazy that would be just ridiculous like that that is Inconceivable for the satellite industry, and uh, they've pretty much done it. And so, again, in China, we've seen this rapid acceleration in the scope, I guess the scale of China's low Earth orbit constellation plans. And it's been quite cryptic, and you have to kind of pull together pieces of information from different sources, and it's still not entirely well defined in terms of an official source saying this is what we plan to do. But what we Can generally derive is that they're looking at doing, like you know, a 10-ish thousand satellite scale constellation in the next, I don't know, decade or something like that, but being rolled out in the scale of, you know, hundreds of satellites probably per year within a couple of years, let's say and the the interesting thing is that you have filings at the ITU that are um GW1 or GWS and there's a couple of different GW filings and it's speculation but uh, a lot of people speculate that it would be Guang, so GW like you know the, the sort of national network um And so these plans, they they became quite a bit more well-defined earlier this year. Well, I guess there's two points, I think, that are quite relevant to to point out in terms of the development. So you had in April 2020, uh, the National Development and Reform Commission, the NDRC, they added satellite internet to their list of new infrastructures alongside 5G and Internet of Things. So that gives you some idea of the level of importance that they assigned to this, that it's in the same sentence as, as 5G. And so again, that was April 2020. And after that, you saw a handful of companies raise money to build factories, to build satellites. You saw state-owned enterprises, like China Unicom, China Telecom, releasing satellite internet type of products into the market. And so you saw a very kind of immediate reaction at a relatively small scale, but still, you know, big stuff going on. And then I, I think the second date that's significant would be like April of 2021, where we had the establishment of this company, China SatNet, which was established at a very high level, so directly under SASAC, so at the same level as China Telecom, China Unicom, Cask, Kasich, etc. And this China SatNet, which is headquartered in Xiong'an in the new kind of uh, capital-planned district in, uh, in Hebei, um, it's been staffed with sort of high-level people from many different state-owned enterprises. And it's all the usual suspects, Cask, Kasich, the telecom uh, companies, um, and then CETC. And I think it's going to be really interesting because you have a situation where, in theory, they will be able to really kind of pick and choose amongst a bunch of different state-owned enterprises who are all trying to build, let's say, satellites and rockets, and also, in theory, a bunch of commercial companies that are building satellites and rockets. and. The aforementioned at the very beginning of the you know Hongyan, uh, which is a cask project, had that project really you know continued to gain traction. Which again, it's still alive, but I don't think it's really gained that much traction. That would be probably heavily slanted towards buying cask stuff because it's a it's cask company basically. And so again, by having Satnet be at this you know just under CAC level, it, it gives them quite a lot of. um of influence, I, I think, and ability to be quite autonomous. So, yeah, and then I guess just the last point that I'll highlight. So, again, what we're likely to see now moving forward is SatNet is this company that's going to be the operating company of this constellation that's going to get built out over the next two to five to ten years. And it will essentially be kind of this global, uh, sorry, well, yeah, I guess a global space based telecommunications network. So, basically, like a telco from space. And I do think it's quite, you know, it's appropriate that it's been set up at the same level as the
0: telcos because it is um, a telco from space. And I think it's interesting how today when we talk about China's satellite internet projects, how this is materialized by this GuoWang, this uh, China SatNet project. But three, four years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. As, as Blaine hinted at a little bit, there were a lot of private companies having their own uh, broadband SATCOM uh, projects, constellations, such as Galaxy Space, uh, such as many others. Some still sort of do, but most of them have uh, moved up the Valley chain and decided that um, we are going to make the satellites and sell them to the uh, satellite operators rather than Operate a constellation, a broadband constellation in itself, because it is understood that today, um, while operating a broadband satcom constellation is is quite a touchy um, activity that is probably going to be reserved to state-owned companies. Um, and you know, as Blaine said, you, you know, telco it, it, you're, 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 you have the role of a space telco, and telco business uh, we know in China that is really. Um, uh you know a state-owned business typically china unicom china mobile china telecom uh, these different telcos
2: global markets are a mess right now evergrand is on the brink of collapse the u.s government may be a few days away from defaulting and nfts are making teenagers millionaires overnight so how are investors supposed to navigate this potential nightmare scenario well there was a glimmer of hope hidden in a corner market. It's one of the most underrated asset classes that billionaires have been investing in for millennia. It is blue chip art, ladies and gentlemen. Contemporary art pieces have outperformed the S&P by 174% between 1995 and 2020. Art is a $1.7 trillion asset class projected to grow 58% in five short years, according to Deloitte. Masterworks is the first company to give ordinary investors access to this exclusive asset class. Letting everyday investors invest in these works for a fraction of the typical $10-plus purchase price. In the past two years, they've been extensively featured in publications like The Wall Street Journal, CNN, and New York Times. I've partnered with Masterworks to allow you all to skip the waitlist. Just head to the special link at masterworks.io chinatalk Important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Can you talk a little bit about the feedback loops between developments in the West and China? What has the impact of SpaceX been?
1: Um, So I think the impact of SpaceX in China, there's kind of twofold impact. And I think one of them is quite China specific. And then the other one is is kind of more of a global impact. Um, so I guess the global impact is just, you know, you see SpaceX doing these amazing technical things or, or commercializing technology that was otherwise just impossible. And it inspires this generation of, of, you know, space industry people in China. So you see a lot of people that post stuff about Elon Musk and, you know, there's there's this really and, – and there's a lot of, uh, to, as John alluded to in terms of launch, there's some, you know, sort of technical inspiration, we could call it, in terms of companies that are doing things that are similar in terms of uh, their use of certain technologies – to what SpaceX is doing, and then I think at a more kind of China-specific level, you have the more kind of geopolitical impact whereby SpaceX is doing things that are enabling the U.S. government or the U.S. military to have um, you know more robust capabilities in the space domain, and then by extension, I guess in, in Earth, uh, on Earth, in the, in the sense that they would have you know access to lower-cost rockets to launch anything they wanted into space. They would also have potentially Global communications with a Starlink type of network, and we have seen you know the u s military and uh, sign some contracts with Starlink for you know communications you know with very low latency this kind of thing and so I think that from that perspective the Chinese government is one of the relatively few governments globally that has such a strategic uh, sort of imperative to to try to have a, a sort of competing or, if not competing, sort of a, a network that would allow them to have their own network that they're relying on. In a similar way to satellite navigation, I guess, with Beidou, um, where, you know, GPS existed and it was quite, it's, it's quite sufficient in terms of just getting global location services. Um, but there's a certain level of reliance on uh, somebody that you might not want to be reliant on. So, again, I think Musk and, and SpaceX and what they have enabled in terms of the U.S. government it ha- has certainly been a sort of accelerant in terms of the Chinese government's, um, let's say, reform and opening up, if we can use a rather specific phrase, possibly not entirely correctly, but let's say uh, of the industry and, and of this specific uh, business model.
0: The Chinese really look very closely at what U.S. companies are doing. And you can see this, as Blaine said, multiple comparisons to Elon Musk. Every company is saying, you know, they're the launch companies saying they're the SpaceX of China. Some constellations say, you know, we are the one web of China. We are the Starlink of China. And so you can see that they are looking very closely at at what's going on. And I think that the U.S. played a very significant role in um, the, as as Blaine said, the opening up of of the space sector due to just the emergence of of new space in the late 2000s and the early um, 2010s. And that triggered China um, starting from approximately 20, 2014, to um, decide to open up um, the space sector to private capital. And so that is what uh, triggered the, the, the founding, the creation of so many um, uh, private um, Chinese space companies. So definitely, I think this new space trend in, in China gets a lot of inspiration uh, from what is what was going on in, in the US. Um, and, and I think we also see this in, in other sectors beyond space.
2: One of the confusing parts of this whole Chinese effort to create their own Leo constellation is the fact that there are a ridiculous amount of base stations spread throughout all rural corners of China. If the market isn't necessarily there for um, you know, broad consumer consumption in China for, for GuoWang, what are the prospects for exporting this capability around the world?
1: Any constellation of sufficient size would be pretty much, by definition, at least somewhat global. I mean, they could certainly have capacity concentrated over China in terms of having more kind of shells or otherwise more. But but in general, it would be pretty much you know, global capacity. And I think that it's not entirely clear right now what the commercialization strategy would be in terms of going international. But I suspect it would be a couple of things. So one you'd have, I think, as part of the broader Chinese tech stack that is being exported abroad. So that would be things like telecommunications networks or things like even, I guess, smartphones or like, you know, modems or Xiaomi smart home type of stuff. Um, you could imagine, uh, and this is, you know, very, it, it, it imagines an impressive degree of, of alignment of, of different companies and, and entities, but you could imagine some degree of, of kind of this comprehensive tech stack being exported that includes, uh, in some instances, satellite internet or or that, that you know, uh, some connectivity based on that, which would be something like a you know, village Wi-Fi type of hotspot or something like that. And then I guess the other thing would be probably Chinese companies abroad, of which there are I don't, well, there's a, I, I guess, Chinese companies abroad, potentially the Chinese military abroad or at home. Um, and then again, I do think that the, the other element of why would they, you know, what what's the sort of the reasoning behind it and, and so is from a cost perspective, it's, it's large, but it's not that large. And it's sort of just a, a piece of national infrastructure, I think. It's just sort of viewed as something that is strategic in, in wanting to, to have this similar to, to Beidou, the Satellite Navigation Constellation.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think the business model for Goong is probably much less clear than it is for, for Starlink, for example. Starlink, among other things, aims at serving underserved areas in the U.S. or in other parts of the world. And these areas exist, and the people in these areas probably have, maybe have enough um, you know, purchasing power to be able to purchase this sort of service. I mean, the, the question is uh, maybe a little bit different in China. I, th- I mean, the answer is a little bit different in China. I think the broadband connectivity um, on the ground is, is already very good. And if you go in the most rural areas of China where really don't have that much connectivity, um, well, those are very, very poor areas in China. And there's I, I mean, I really question the ability of these people to buy uh, satellite internet. based on I mean, compared to other more basic needs such as, I, I don't know, food, education, th- this sort of stuff. To get Starlink installed in your house, it's like
2: $600. SpaceX said it cost them $1,000 to manufacture the dish, and then they're charging $100 a month. This is more than what a rural farmer in China makes in a year.
0: Yeah, so I think that that probably won't be the main customers in China for the Golan constellation. It could be in other countries that have you know not as good a broadband um, network on the ground. And also you have other applications, you have mobile SATCOM, you have providing connectivity maybe to maritime applications, to oil and gas stations, to um, aircraft. There are also you know, to autonomous vehicles, there are many other applications that that exist out there for this constellation. But I agree with Blaine that this is definitely seen as more as a national infrastructure, more than, um, you know, I think initially a, a business model uh, that's going to make a lot of money. What else is the Chinese government trying to export in terms of space-related services? I think that Beidou is also a very big project that China is, is is trying to trying to export. So China completed its Beidou, its uh, third-generation satnav constellation in 2020. There are multiple satellites, um, satnav satellites in medium Earth orbit. You have uh, some others in geostationary orbit and uh, ge- geosynchronous orbit, and these provide uh, a wide variety of services that can be. Uh, that are very similar to GPS and, and the level of service depends on you know where you are situated on the planet. China definitely is pushing forward uh, Beidou. You have a lot of Beidou projects that are along the Belt and Road. Uh, you have also uh, state-owned enterprises that are a big promoter of, of Beidou um, products and that are... And China also is... Very aware of the current deteriorating relations between the US and China. And one of the main ideas behind Beidou is also replacing any um, GPS dependent systems um, by Beidou. And that is something also that they're, through their state owned enterprises, they are trying to push overseas, notably uh, along the Belt and Road.
1: I think we've seen this interesting evolution over the past, say, 15 years in terms of the different space related things that China has been exporting. So you have. Uh, one company, China Great Wall Industry Corps, a CGWIC, which is a subsidiary of CASC. And they're basically a, um, a broker for international business for things that are purchased from Cask. And so that would be like if you are Venezuela, like uh, countries that have bought satellites from China this way have included like Venezuela, Nigeria, Pakistan, uh, Laos. And basically they would buy a satellite, they would buy the launch service, they would buy insurance, they would buy oftentimes sort of a a gateway type of of, uh, thing. So a bunch of satellite dishes on the ground that would be controlling the satellite. And you would also sometimes get sort of like technical training in this kind of thing. And so these would be two to three to $400 million turnkey projects. And, and I would also point out that this is something that um, Boeing and Airbus also, you know, they have a quite good business doing this, um, you know, selling these satellites to countries as a way of connecting unconnected areas in, in developing countries. And so, again, we've seen this transition from selling these very big satellites, which was a decent business for China from, say, 2005 until about 2017, 2018. They started selling fewer and fewer, I think. Um, and to now selling more kind of services and other kind of value-added, well, I guess services uh, using the existing infrastructure. So like Beidou type of, of services. So the example would be like China Great Wall. They just opened an office in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, or they announced the opening of an office within this year, um, just a couple of weeks ago. And they're going to be uh, you know trying to commercialize Beidou-related uh, products and services in Cambodia. And again, I think that's a very it's a very big difference from 10 years ago when CGWIC the same company was brokering a satellite deal with Lao uh, you know the,
0: the, the yeah so yeah it's it's been interesting to watch the transition and you can also see a similar pattern for example with the uh meteorology data coming from from the fangyun satellites so you see these you see these patterns across for ver- various subverticals of of the space industry china has a number of uh, fangyun satellites that are orbiting the earth and that are um, you know, taking taking pictures of the Earth for, for meteorology purposes, and China has been promoting Fengyun data to um, Southeast Asia countries, to to other countries around the Belt and Road, uh, making this data available. So it's 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 sort of this um, idea of a uh, Belt and Road space and information corridor. That's the name I think that gave, um, sort of the space segment of Belt and Road, and it's to make available all sorts of space services uh, to these countries as part of Belt and Road. So what is Pride
2: Sat and how does it play into China's space export ambitions?
1: So basically, I mean you PrideSat would be kind of the, the satellites that I mentioned earlier of like Laosat 1, for example, which was this couple hundred million dollar uh, turnkey satellite sold to Lao. You've also again had satellites sold to Venezuela, Bolivia. And and these satellites are you know satellites that a developing country would buy in order to do things like well, sometimes it would be, you know, broadcasting national TV channels to a country that has people in a very geographically distributed area and that could take up as much as like you know half a satellite let's say you could if it's a big country with lots of tv channels Um, and then you would also have things like atm networks or rural schools this kind of thing being connected by a satellite and and again china had sold probably about 12 to 15 of these over that decade or so or 12 year period of like 2005 to 2017 and and quite a few that were just you know quite uh I think my favorite one was Bill InterSat, which they sold to Belarus, and, uh, and it, it remains in orbit, and I think it's broadcasting, you know, quite a few Belarusian channels, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite, quite a mission. Um, but anyway, I, I think that, um, what we've seen, or what we will very likely see moving forward, is a similar trend to what I mentioned earlier, um, with, with satellite navigation or with other, you know, other verticals, which is this transition from exporting these big turnkey satellites to exporting kind of services. And so in this case, it would be, Exporting communication either via a Chinese uh, constellation, as we just discussed, or potentially even via like China SATCOM. So China has its own satellite operator, China SATCOM, primarily geostationary, uh, like very large satellites, mostly broadcast. Um, And they are also building out a global network of high throughput satellites, like very big geostationary satellites. So separate to China's constellation plans, they're just building out a network of, uh, I think at the moment they have three very large satellites planned. And so, again, as opposed to a country buying, say, a PrideSat previously, which they might well have done, um, I think now it's it's easier to buy a lot of capacity on a satellite um, if it's available. Talk a
2: little about the process of commercialization and opening up this industry to players outside of SOEs. Sure. So what we've seen, I
1: guess, is that in China, there's been this relatively gradual opening of the industry starting around 2014. Prior to that, everything in China in the space sector would have been CASC, which is the China Aerospace Science Technology Corporation. Um, and then a relatively smaller amount would have been CASC, which is largely subcontracted through CASC. And so starting in 2014, uh, the government allowed private investment into certain verticals in the space sector. And over the last seven years now, we've seen more than 100 commercial companies coming in, into the industry. And I think that if we compare it to the West, where you have um, a lot of the biggest, most innovative companies are private companies like SpaceX and like even like Boeing and and uh, and Airbus, um, and and these other very large established companies that they're, they're private. And in China, almost all of it is is the government or is CASC, which is the state-owned enterprise. And so now we, again, we've seen this gradual commercialization, and we're we're starting to see, I think, more as there becomes more you know larger space projects, and CASC basically gets busier and busier with what they have on their plate. Um, a lot of the other stuff is just going to, to end up going to commercial companies as kind of a, a, a side effect of the ambitions of, of sort of the, the government and of, of Cask, I guess, to a certain extent. And so it's a very different type of commercialization, I think, relative to what you're getting in, in the U.S., where it's more kind of the, the market has allowed um, companies to just kind of develop as, as they do. And, and that's kind of where a lot of the demand is coming from. Although also, I guess, in the U.S., a lot of demand is, is NASA and, and others as well.
2: How are European companies trying to navigate between these rising US China tensions? China is a big market.
0: It's a big space market. There's always the question for European companies you know do we, do we go to the US? Do we go sell our products to China? Do we do both? Can we do both? If we do both, will one of the countries you know do something in order to prevent us from selling in, in the you know the other country? And so there is always this uh, dilemma definitely for a lot of um, European countries and i think the the us um well the us market is a lot more straightforward for quite a few european companies either to grow either to sell their products because well there's this just um proximity and there's this um more understandable ecosystem whereas china is definitely sometimes a black box for for multiple reasons but it's also uh, a less you know much less mature market with its own opportunities for uh, for european country com- companies so of course, it depends on the subvertical here, but yeah, that basically these are these are two markets that um, countries are looking at. I know that uh, I know some companies that are working in the U.S. and that have, um, you know, that have uh, put aside their Chinese projects. Mynaric, and uh, for example, Laser Spacecoms is is one such example. And there are also European companies that are um, there are fewer of them, but there are some that are also doing this the the other way around. What's the vibe like in the China space
2: world, and how does it compare to the sort of off-the-charts levels of, like, optimism that I've encountered in the space people I've met in the West?
1: I would say there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of new companies being created all the time, and there's also just a really interesting camaraderie. So I'll give one example. Um I was at a conference in Wuhan in 2018 or 2019, and it was this big dinner with a very large circular table, and all of the different commercial launch companies were around the table, and there were like five or six different companies represented, and then Xbase, which is you know the big Kasich subsidiary that had raised a couple hundred million dollars from Kasich, and they were kind of the... The, the godfather of sorts at the end of the night you know it was like oh yeah they are they're the host tonight so you know don't worry about any of that and so it was very um all of the commercial launch companies were getting their their, their dinner on on Kasich, which or sorry, on a- on a- Space, which was um yeah an interesting kind of camaraderie in in the sector and then I think the other element that's that's I think kind of similar to the west although at the same time it's probably a somewhat larger percentage of the population is just this sort of increasing popular awareness of of space in general so we saw for example last year um Billy Billy launched their own satellite which is basically a high definition video satellite and they have on billybilly.com uh, there's a dedicated uh, kind of like earth from space channel with you know cool video shots of of the earth from this uh this video satellite that they launched um so that was uh, that was pretty interesting you also saw Xiaomi at one point I think, launch a smartphone and they took a photo, I think, of the Earth or using a smartphone camera, maybe, maybe not the whole phone. But yeah, so I I think there's just this kind of popular... Awareness around space, and, and I guess the, the last example of that I'll, I'll give, and then I'll hand it off to John, is um, is the the pilgrimages that you see of people going to Hainan to see the Long March Five B and Long March Seven launches. So you have uh, the in, in China the, the largest, the large commercial, I guess the the commercial, or the spaceport for the largest rockets is in Hainan in, in Wenchang, and so every you've now had four times I think the Long March Five or Five B has launched. And then the Long March Seven, which are these really huge rockets that that launch uh, from the seaside with a beach right there, and there's a Hilton hotel with with you know balconies overlooking the, I mean, from very far away, overlooking the launch pad. And you you see this pilgrimage of you know literally hundreds or or I guess maybe thousands of people uh, going down to Hainan for these launches. And in the most recent one, you had the the Xian uh, Orchestra or the, yeah the Xian Symphony Orchestra or something playing on the beach in like full on tuxedos with the the Long <laughs> March going on in the background. It was, was uh, it was pretty incredible some of the footage coming from that so yeah there was um, a lot of a lot of popular awareness i think of, of what's going on in the industry now
0: and to just expand a little bit on on space culture definitely i think china has done A very good job of making something, a topic that was uh, initially quite not, I wouldn't say unpopular, but definitely not one one of the top topics that are discussed among, among young people into something that has really been gaining attractivity. And we can trace this back to, well, let's say before, you know, maybe 10 years, 15 years ago. As Blaine mentioned, space was something that was done by state-owned companies, and the interest from the Chinese youth has shifted progressively. From when when a young person in China from a good university graduates, their dream generally is not to join large state-owned enterprises anymore. Uh, there's uh, companies like you know ByteDance, Alibaba, Tencent, all these big tech companies have gained attractivity because it pays better, because there's more dynamism than in state-owned enterprises. And so space uh, did not have a very big appeal to Chinese people uh, until a few years ago. And China has done a very big effort in trying to make uh, space more attractive. So that has been, uh, for example, putting together this annual event that they call China Space Day that has been taking place every year on the 24th of April. Uh, since 2016, where it's you know it's during two days, you have a lot of space conferences, um, you know space uh, outreach events all around the country. You can be observing the sky with a telescope. It can be conferences. It can be drawing competitions. You know drawing the moon, drawing Mars, drawing space exploration for uh, lower school students. There are. There's really a lot of stuff like that going on. And when you couple that with the fact that there is an emergence of private space companies and these companies are raising raising a lot of VC money. So you have sort of a a tech vibe, uh, you know, a a vibe that comes from the tech industry that you had maybe in five or six years ago. You know, now space definitely is something that's becoming much more cool for the Chinese youth. And I think there was a poll, although I don't know how reliable it was, I think around two years ago, where they asked the youth of various countries what you want to be uh later on when you grow up and the answer uh, uh, of those 10 years olds was was maybe youtuber in the u.s for example and on the other hand it was astronaut in in china again i don't know what was the amount of people they asked and in what conditions so i don't know how reliable this poll is but it does give an idea of how more cool space is becoming in china
2: yeah i mean come on no knock on content creators there are three of them on this podcast right now um We just saw China launch a Mars rover a little while back. What
0: are the broader plans and ambitions for Chinese space exploration? So China has a very ambitious uh, space exploration program. This concerns the low-Earth orbit. They're currently building a space station that will be completed by next year. They also have a very ambitious uh, lunar exploration program that's uh, currently already undergoing. They've already sent five missions, and there are three others upcoming in the next five years, approximately. And th- they've just achieved, well, they've, they've begun to achieve their first uh, Mars mission, uh, lander mission and rover mission um, in the last couple of weeks, where China landed um, the Zhurong rover, and which will be active for at least normally the next uh, three months, and will be sending a lot of scientific data as well as amazing pictures um, um, back to the Earth. China has also some uh, Longer term goals, which are also fascinating, we know that in the end of the 2020s, they're planning a sample return mission from Mars. They also have they also have a mission that's called Jungha that will visit an asteroid and bring back a sample. There's a, another mission called GanDe that will visit Jupiter and one of its moons. You have the interstellar heliosphere probe that will go to the very frontier of the heliosphere to do space sciences. So a lot of cool stuff and a lot of it, things that can be inspiring for a lot of non-space people because a lot of it, some of it con- concerns also crewed space missions. So sending people to the moon. Um, that is something also that China has in mind. It's called the ILRS, the International Lunar Research Center. Currently, we're sort of seeing these two parallel uh, projects. You have the Artemis program that's US-led and that with which a lot of European countries and other countries around the world, Japan, Australia, they, they collaborate together and on the other hand, you have the ILRS, which is China-led, but uh, Russia has signed a Memorandum of Understanding uh, to take part in this ILRS. And so we're sort of having these two lunar exploration programs that are uh, undergoing in parallel. So um, it's really very exciting times for for space exploration.
1: And I think just a, a small point to add to that would be, I guess, the activities as well with the, the Chinese space station that was recently launched and the fact that that will soon maybe be the... Um, the only human space station in, in low Earth orbit, uh, if, if the ISS is not uh, not extended, and so you'll have a situation where really a lot of the large scale international projects are, are being led by China, and and occasionally again with these international partners like Russia that are bringing quite a lot to the table technologically, or even I mean you know, sort of you could say you know smaller scale international partners that are doing things on, on specific missions, and so that would be things like, for example, you've seen in the, the Pakistani media. Um, I think it was the uh, current or the former prime minister that was talking about wanting to send the first Pakistani person to space, and it would be to the Chinese space station. Um, you've also seen announcements of international collaboration with China and Italy on, I think it's Chang'e 6. And so, again, you, you're seeing these larger projects that are really only you know, only China and the U.S. and, and to some extent ESA have the, the scale to do these very large-scale projects in a lot of instances – and so, if you're, a, you know, one of the other, you know, couple hundred countries that might want to do some, some sort of space exploration or space uh, science or this kind of thing, um, you're oftentimes doing it with China as a as a partner.
2: Just one last shout-out to the Dongfang Hour podcast and the China Aerospace blog. I have read the entire back catalog. And as someone who is lazy sometimes and wants to read about China in English instead of in Chinese all the time, there are no two better guides out there than John and Blaine. So do consider signing up for their content. Thank you so much for being a part of China Talking to you. Too.
3: You want bang your letter bang. He said he bleeding with a stain. My bitch at the top of food chest. They local, I like, don't even know the name. I've been fresh since a kid, ain't never playing. I just picked up a back in Rotterdam. I'ma whoop out the make and pop your brain. I do it, I want and shout can't. I do it, I feel and shout at I'm digging, I digging, and shout at Lane. And all of the bitches say they dig that. From Maine, way to Spain. All I got is some chicken for the stats. I take on like a plane. And I'm gonna be. Like a rocket my Yeah, like a man. Yeah, yeah i am yeah. yeah. on a On a private honor yeah. i am a launch yeah. It gotta be the pride of something how about that man stumbling? I stumble up on a mill. I stumble up on a million five. I spent the fortune on those double seals. If I tell you the numbers, you probably cry. If I tell you you're faking, you probably die. These days, if he say that he hit, then he probably lie. If you say you got wings and some fish, then you probably fry. Got my carrots out of bunny Clyde. She let me back in like she never cried. She let me back in like I never lied. I look like a cat with 11 lives. I really kiss shit. You can ask a fly. I'm steady chasing like I'm never tired. I'm living scary like a hundred highs. Little mama says she can put a fly. Yeah. I'm a man. I'm a